one way that it's damaging is on the child's point of view. And that is that idea that if they become addicted, that means they're a bad kid. As a parent, if we believe that myth, we have to accept then that our parenting failed. There's just such a myriad of ways that opioid misuse can start that it would not surprise me that it goes across any socioeconomic status, any education level, race, ethnicity, anything like that. We should be loving and caring towards all of those who have an illness, and this is something we know is occurring with people with substance use disorders. Welcome to episode nine of Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we'll be discussing the myth, not my kid. In this conversation, we'll cover the ways in which opioid use disorders most commonly start in adolescence, the dangers of not talking to our kids about opioids, the recommendations for opioid use prevention, and the recommendations for if your child is using opioids. We'll talk about resources and initiatives available right here in Utah, and we'll end by talking about why it's important to debunk the myth, not my kid. Before we jump into the conversation, let's first have our guests introduce themselves. Yeah, I'm Charla Bokikio. I am a mother. My daughter, who was 22 years old, died of a fentanyl overdose about three and a half years ago. So I've written a book about it, and I speak at treatment centers and other, other places to try to spread awareness and stop the stigma. I am Stacy MacArthur. I'm the Youth Health and Wellness Specialist for Utah State University Extension. So I work on different opioid prevention programming throughout the state and try to get funding to make it so that we can reach this message to more youth across the state of Utah. I'm um, a professional practice extension assistant professor of health and wellness um, at Utah State University Extension. I'm part of the HEART team, which is a health extension advocacy research and teaching initiative called HEART. Um, we also work across the state on initiatives relating to opioids, suicide prevention, um, anything that people need some help with, we try and assist. It's glad to be here. And that's Tim Cady, for those of you who may not have heard that. I'm Gabriel. I'm an MPH student at Utah State University. I've worked in public health for 11 years, primarily in LGBTQ health and wellness and commercial tobacco prevention. And I'm the younger brother of someone who had an opioid use disorder. Thanks for being here, Gabriel. We really appreciate it. So again, the myth that we are debunking today is not my kid. Or in other words, you know, my kids are smart. I raised them right. So they're definitely not going to use drugs and they're definitely not going to develop a substance use disorder. So that being said, um, I want to first hear one or two sentences from each of you about what you think when you hear this myth. Yeah, I think, look, it's, it's a damaging myth in two ways, as far as I'm concerned. One way that it's damaging is on the child's point of view. And that is that idea that if they become addicted, if they develop a substance use disorder, that means they're a bad kid. The other way that I saw it happen in my own life was as a parent. And that is that if we believe that myth, we have to accept then that our parenting failed. Thank you for those thoughts. Yeah. Um, so Dr. MacArthur, what do you think when you hear this myth? If we believe this myth, then we're not open to helping. 
if if we're not able to get past what we're thinking, if we believe this, then we're not coming from a place of compassion and we're not open to hearing what they're, they are going through. Um, it also makes me question what messages we're sending when we believe things like this. Because um, the myth might say that only a certain type of person can become addicted. You know, uneducated people or like she said, bad people. It's kind of like the stranger danger in the, in the early 80s. People started to realize, oh wait, everybody can be a stranger or every, you know, people, people were having issues not with strangers, but from people they knew. And we need to look at opioid addiction the same way. These are people that we know and love. So we need to uh, take note of any biases that we feel so that we can say, this person that I know and love right now needs my help and where, how am I going to respond? Yeah, well said, thank you. You know, as you were speaking, it kind of reminded me that this myth is, it's a two-edged sword in a sense because it, it, it inhibits prevention, right? It tells the parent like, my kid is smart. I don't need to do anything to prevent this from happening necessarily, except for continuing to say that they're smart and that they won't have this happen. So, so it's like this perspective of denial almost. And then it also alienates those who may have a substance use disorder and, and it turns it into a moral issue, which we talk about over and over that substance use disorders are not a moral issue. This is, this is a health condition and it's a chronic illness and it needs to be treated that way. Absolutely. Thank you. So Tim, what are what do you think when you hear this myth? Uh, I agree with what Charla and Dr. MacArthur have both said. Um, and would just add that the difficulty becomes, how do we then go back to the parents and say, you've done a good thing. It's not your fault something occurred. Um, we have all these things that we try and lay out to people as being good or bad. I think we try and have things be black or white a lot in our society. And in this, there really is not a black or white, but saying that your child is not gonna have any drug or alcohol issues is just really being, I guess, naive about what's happening in the world and what may happen. I think this is a damaging myth that can destroy and has destroyed a lot of families. And I've seen it. I've seen families that were just devastated by something occurring, didn't know what to do even when they were directed and how to get help for their child, that bias and stigma really prevented that child and that family from getting the care and help that they needed. So it's very difficult. And you know, the, the scenario that Tim is highlighting is all too common and it's really tragic. It's tragic that this stigma, that these kind of myths that perpetuate the stigma, you know, they prevent people from getting help. Gabriel, what do you think when you hear this myth? So I think of a kind of natural defense mechanism. I feel like my parents used that a lot when my sister was going through all of her um, substance use disorder issues, but um, of basically just not wanting to be blamed for basically having been a bad parent because there's a stigma of not wanting to be that bad parent, wanting to raise your children right, um, and making sure that they're smart and know right from wrong or just saying no. And so I think it's just this natural kind of defense mechanism but I think it also, kind of what Charla was saying, it turns into this whole blaming the child and kind of getting into, oh, they must be bad, they must be weak, I'm the good parent, so my child, there must be something wrong with my child. Um, and I think that creates a very hostile environment, um, not only for shame, but I think just for mental health in general. 
for the child who's going through the substance use disorder and I think for the other children as well who aren't going through it. I love that you highlighted how your parents must have felt and how you know this myth may have affected them. We're going to take a quick break and um, after the break we'll talk about the ways in which opioid use disorders most commonly start in adolescence and the dangers of not talking to our kids about opioids. So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Rural Opioid Technical Assistance Program, offering programs to address barriers of access to rural communities related to opioid use disorder. And Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield of Utah works to transform healthcare from the inside out. We reduce confusion, waste, and red tape for members as we help them navigate the healthcare system. The information on the show is so important, so relevant, and definitely information that more people need to hear. So please take a minute to rate and review the show. There's something about the algorithm. The more reviews, the more debunked shows up in people's feeds. So rate and review. Thanks. Welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is my kids are smart and I raised them right. So they are not at risk of developing a substance use disorder. Right now, we're going to talk about the ways in which opioid use disorders most commonly start in adolescence. And then we'll jump into the dangers of not talking to our kids about opioids. So, Dr. MacArthur, how do opioid use disorders most commonly start in adolescence? Uh, well, there's a few different ways that that might happen. One of them is, unfortunately, that they find unused prescriptions in their own homes. That can happen a lot. Uh, another one is that they continue to use, which becomes misuse after a surgery or an injury, uh, where they no longer have a medical need for the prescription, but now it becomes a psychological or an emotional need. So they continue to take those prescription medications. Um, and then a couple others are just to use recreational with friends. And then if there's a mental health history. So they're, they're honestly, that's, that's the reason why anybody can become addicted is because there's just such a myriad of ways that opioid misuse can start. Uh, that it would not surprise me that it goes across any socioeconomic status, any education level, any race, ethnicity, anything like that, just because you can't get rid of any of those things. Thank you. You know, um, in episode two of Debunked, we talk a lot about how addiction, substance use disorders, they do not discriminate. And um, so I love that you pointed that out there. This spans, this spans humanity. It really does not discriminate. So Charla, um, can you tell us a bit about Cassidy's journey and um, when her substance use disorder began and some of the you know, contributing factors that perhaps led to the, her disorder? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's hard to figure out where it all started. I'm sure like many people, but she definitely had a lot of emotional issues before she even tried a substance. And um, as far as the heroin use is concerned, because that became her drug of choice in her adolescence, she tried heroin for the first time when she was 15. She was with a, a boyfriend. They had been experimenting with a variety of different substances at that point. She had been using cocaine a little bit. And again, we didn't know any of this at the time. This is all, this all came out later when she was in treatment. 
she'd been using cocaine with his boyfriend and she didn't like the way it made her nose feel. She was getting nosebleeds and it was bothering her. So they had the brilliant idea to inject it. And so they did. And um, that was the first, <laughs> this is when we found out that there was a more serious issue. Uh, her dad and I were both away for the evening. I was directing, a, a, it was opening night of a play I was directing and her dad was down in uh, Southern Alabama for a trial. And we got a call from the police that a 911 call had been placed for my daughter at her home where she um, was with her boyfriend and he overdosed and was seizing on her bedroom floor. So she panicked and called 911. He, he survived and he was fine. But this was the wake up call for us. We got to the house and found out what was going on. And, um, and that was the beginning of a much larger discussion and of course, treatment and subsequent issues. So once she injected the cocaine, that opened up that, um, that way of using. And so it wasn't long after that, that she introduced heroin. And I don't know if this is a, the place in, the, in this podcast where I, we should even talk about it, but the way she got heroin introduced was she and her boyfriend went to their dealer to get um, cocaine. And he said, I got something way better. I'll just throw this in, just, just try this. And he gave them heroin to try. And of course that opened up an entirely new world for her. That was the thing I, I believe that really shut off all of that stuff that was going on inside of her. And of course, the first time I'm sure was wonderful for her and she wanted to get it back and back and back and she couldn't. And of course that, you know, it takes hold chemically and you've got a 15 year old brain that it's in there <laughs> wreaking havoc. I feel like she almost didn't have a chance. You know, and when I say that, I don't think I realized at the time the damage that was being done to her brain and the damage that was being done psychologically to her because of these substances and because of the way her brain chemistry was interacting with them. You know, we tried everything we could to get her help. And we went to the places that you'd go. You go to a therapist, you go to 28 day programs, you, um, you know, we ended up finding a long-term residential treatment center here in Southern Utah when we were living in Alabama, we sent her across the country. We did everything we could. So we felt like we were using our tools, but I feel like we got, like it all failed us somehow. Like it just wasn't quite enough. It wasn't, in, um, they were attacking one small part of the disease. They didn't even really understand it as a disease back then, I don't think. So I'm, I'm using that, that term loosely, but they were just attacking like what they knew. And while she was in treatment, she did great. That was the best thing ever, you know? She had structure, she wasn't able to get the substances. So it was like this forced um, uh, remission. And once she got out, the tools didn't translate somehow to everyday life for her. And, um, and it was just, it was too much. But still it's, um, 
I want to commend you um, as a mother, you know, going through the, that roller coaster. You know, you did everything in your power, and we all have to commend you for that. It's really incredible. You know, with, w- this podcast is all about harm reduction. And the truth is, there's no magic bullet that works for everybody. But with harm reduction, it's, we'll talk more about this, but it's a beautiful approach of compassion and love meeting people where they're at and helping them however they want that help. And again, where they're at, what they're capable of doing in, in that moment of their illness. So Gabriel, what did this look like for your sister? You know, Charla just told us about Cassidy's journey. Can you tell us a bit about that journey for your sister? Yeah, so it's so, I don't know. Yeah, just profound um, listening to Cassidy's journey just because I have to put myself back in the shoes because I was just so young when my sister was going through all of this stuff. I was only in elementary school. I was maybe in fifth or sixth grade at the time and she was in middle school. Um, And so a lot of it, I actually was pretty much kept in the dark for at the time. Um, My parents just didn't talk about it with us. And then I just really didn't know anything about substance use disorder as a child. Um, So I really had no idea what was going on or how bad it actually was. But kind of now from conversations that I've had as an adult, it sounds like for her, it was mostly a mix of coping with mental health issues and then kind of just recreationally with friends who were already using. So for her, there was a lot of experimentation with prescriptions, uh, marijuana, alcohol, and then eventually she went to heroin. And so it was just a lot of self-medicating with uh, heroin just to cope with everything. And we grew up in a household where it definitely wasn't safe or didn't feel safe to really talk about mental health or anything around it. Or if you'd made mistakes, it didn't feel safe to tell anyone that you made a mistake. Um, And so I think for her, it helped a lot to just find different avenues to feel safe. I think she felt really safe um, using heroin because it got her to a point where she could kind of just deal with everything and cope with everything and maybe she couldn't be the perfect child that my parents wanted but um, she felt kind of at peace with herself with heroin. You know uh, when you said that you felt like you couldn't really talk about these topics um, that's also so common. I can't even count how many people have told me that. So let's talk about the dangers of not having you know, open, honest conversations about opioids with our children and also maybe, you know, other just heavy topics. So it seems to be common for parents to say, you know, my kid knows better or is too educated or has too good of a life to try opioids or any other substance. Therefore, I don't need to bring it up. Or as a parent, I don't need to talk about these issues because my kid learns about opioids and the dangers of using drugs from school programs. Or, you know, there's another thought As a parent, I don't know much about opioids. Therefore, my kid's not going to know much either. So there's no point having a serious conversation about this. So what are your thoughts on these kind of approaches? Let's go to Charla first, and then we'll go to Dr. MacArthur. Here's where I get a little stuck. Cassidy was an only child, and her dad and I were always so involved in her life. And we always had open communication. Um, so I feel like 
that doesn't necessarily fix anything. However, I do know that even though we were open and, and we were communicating with her about dangers and addiction and alcohol use and, and all of that kind of stuff um, and trying to model moderation as far as alcohol use because we both drank um, socially. And so I, I feel like even though we had that open communication with Cassidy, I think we both, her dad and I still struggled with, once we found out that she was dealing with some of these behaviors, we, we tried to kind of punish her. I think there was still that, we believed the, the myth. We were still falling into that idea that there was a stigma. We were ashamed as parents when we found out she was using at, to this degree you know, we were lying to our, our friends and family members about how, well, how she was doing. So I think if we had been able to, in addition to keeping an open communication with her, if we were also able to approach her disease with compassion and, and a little more love and a little less judgment, because I did, I, I judged her. I judged her poorly for it. And I it's something that I struggle with a lot now because for me, it's too late. It's too late for her. She died of a drug overdose. So I can't go back and change it. I think maybe that's why I feel like sharing our story is so important and speaking is that maybe I can help somebody else. Maybe I can help another mother who's got a child who's dealing with this, a teenager that I can encourage them to approach their child with love, more love and less judgment. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. The shame part that you brought up, I think that's so crucial. You know, we need the love, we need the compassion, and we need no shame. Yeah. There really should not be shame in this illness. There just shouldn't be. And especially there shouldn't be shame for the parent. You know, there's just no one involved in this situation should feel shame but it seems like it's the first feeling. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, um, it's what we jump to. I'm hoping that it's getting better. I think a lot has changed since Cassidy was grappling with this stuff. Um, I hope anyway, <laughs> you know, there was a point after she got out of long-term treatment where um, she was on a Suboxone prescription speaking about, you know, this sort of replacement therapy, or I don't know what they call it now. I think there's a medication for addiction treatment. Okay. I knew there was a change in how they were addressing it. And, you know, even then there was like this tiny part of me that was like, you're not really off the drugs. <laughs> even though I knew in my heart that they were helping her, that the Suboxone was actually helping. Um, gosh, it's, it rem just reminds me how deep seated those myths and the stigma piece is. That is the thing that is going to be the most difficult for us to break in this society. If we can figure out a way to attack that at its very core, then I think then and only then can we really move forward with appropriate treatments. Yeah, exactly which is why all of us are doing what we're doing. This is why we do the work. Yeah. And so I have to hope that it's getting better and that it will continue to get better. 
till it's no longer an issue, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, it would be. Dr. MacArthur, what are your thoughts on the dangers of not having open and honest conversations about opioids with our children? One of the first things that comes to mind is that they're obviously their only option is to get the information from other sources. And if we're not controlling the sources, then, then we don't know where, where those might come through. Uh, you already mentioned that some parents rely on the school programming or something like that, but that might be for one day or during a little health unit or something like that. So it's kind of just touching on it, but they don't, they don't really have the option of talking through or asking questions or how it applies to them or how it applies to what they're going through um, or something like that. And parents need to remember that even though sometimes they don't feel like the, the, they have the most influence on their youth and, and how they're thinking towards things, they really do. And study after study shows that, that the youth are saying their parents influence the most of how they feel about drugs and alcohol, whether they are accepted, whether they're talking to them about consequences, things like that. And so my last thought on it is just that the teens often are not at the stage of, of brain development that they're likely to think through consequences of actions. They might be faced with using some sort of opioid at the spur of the moment. And if they haven't thought through it and if they haven't had a, had a frank conversation about it, that's not the time for them to, to trust that they're going to suddenly be like, well, I should maybe think through this. You know, the common thread often seems to be self-medication, right? So I wonder if sometimes these consequences, the consequence of the way that the, the substance makes the person feel, especially if it stabilizes their mood with, if they have, you know, underlying mental illness, gosh, I wonder if that consequence, again, that kind of points to our system. Absolutely. I, I think we need to establish positive coping mechanisms and, and ask the teens what they need to be able to deal with whatever it is that they're going through. So if they need something to self-medicate, then that means that's a signal that something's wrong, that they, they need something to help stabilize that mood. And so you can talk to them about what they need and what they feel they need, what type of support they need in order to have positive coping mechanisms so that they don't need to turn to these. And if they really do need to work, otherwise this will still be a backup, even though they do know those dangers and the consequences of the op opioid use. If we don't have good enough uh, positive uh, coping mechanisms for them that are going to actually work, then they are going, you're correct, they are going to turn back to some of these negative things because with drugs, it's immediate. I mean, mm -hmm. it immediately has an effect and immediately calms them and, and makes them feel better. So we, that's why I think parents really need to uh, stay in contact with those teens and have multiple conversations to find out how they're doing, if they need additional support, if they need other resources and what you can do to make it so that you are giving all the support that you can. Yeah, gosh, great point. Um, 
so Gabriel, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, what we've been talking about, the dangers of not having open conversations, not having frequent open conversations, letting shame control how we have these conversations? Yeah, so the kind of just staying silent approach, um, I felt such a visceral reaction, just like a sucker punch into my stomach, just hearing that because that my parents definitely used that approach the most, even though they used all of the approaches, but they especially used that one. Um, and no one would tell me anything that was going on. Um, and as a child, you know, like whenever the phone rang in the middle of the night, even though my parents were waking up and they were the ones answering the phone, I definitely woke up with them. And I kind of put my ear against the door and was trying to listen to see who was calling or just seeing the bills in the mail for the rehab centers and just constantly hearing yelling and crying that just never seemed to end. And so, yeah, so I feel like, but at the same time, no one was telling me anything. And so I kind of just assumed everyone's family was like this and that this just was a normal thing. And I think I really reached a point where I was just so paranoid whenever the phone rang or if someone came to the door and I just had so much fear and anxiety that I reached a point where I was just so apathetic. And as a child, it's so sad because I think I reached a point where I kind of just assumed that every phone call or the second someone would knock on the door that they would just be saying they found her body. Um, and I kind of just came to a point of acceptance of that because I saw how much, um, just how much pain was going on. And I was just like, I was so, done with it at that point which sounds so selfish as an adult because definitely we saw that my parents were just so stressed about her opioid use and they were kind of simultaneously bringing the hammer down on the rest of us but also very detached from us and not really involved in our lives for a few years and I remember uh, a lot of times as a preteen kind of just driving around with my sister and she was definitely driving under the influence and I had no idea. And so it was kind of just like, I'm assuming I'm safe, but I'm being put in these unsafe situations or finding paraphernalia. And it's like, I should not be finding this as a 11 year old, 10 year old. Um, but there was this one night where we were, I was going with her to an AA meeting and I actually came out to her. I was weeping in the car and I came out to her. And um, I remember she was just, even though she was so, high out of her mind she was there was this brief moment where I just saw my sister and she was just so loving and accepting and it was just I think that was that moment for me where I just saw her as a human being and I was like no this is still my sister and I think after that point I really kind of got through my apathetic stage but I feel like for kind of her going through it, you know, she was going through her own trauma. And then there was a trauma that all of the siblings had and my parents had, obviously, you know, trauma just really sits in the body. And it's just such a visceral and somatic thing that even though now she's been in recovery for a decade or a little bit more, I still kind of sweat whenever the phone rings or when someone comes to the door or I see police or just flashing lights. Um, I still just kind of have those moments of just like oh no we're going back into this and so constantly I'm just checking in on her um, and just making sure that everything's kind of stayed the same but yeah I feel like had my parents just kind of sat us down and been like you know 
your sisters going through this thing and we just don't know why it's happening and we don't know like we just don't know um i feel like that would have been so much better as a child than just hearing nothing wow thank you so much for sharing that um it's a hard thing you know to know what to do as a parent it's really hard so i i appreciate that perspective gabriel and i want to also highlight again that it's it's so hard to know what to do as a parent it's so hard to know how to address this and in this episode, we want to highlight some of the, the tools um, that parents can use if their kids are experiencing an opioid use disorder or any other substance use disorder for that matter. Um, but before we go to that, I want to hear Tim's thoughts on, you know, the importance of having this open conversation. It comes back to the same thing of trying to, to love and understand your child and what they've gone through and what they may be going through. Um, and I think that, you know, I think as Gabriel spoke about now, talking about stuff in your family really makes it difficult for a child to understand some of those adverse childhood experiences that may be going on um, in addition to what's happening to the person who has a substance use disorder. So I have many feelings and I really feel that parents need education from the beginning um, and sometimes that's easy, sometimes that's difficult. But just how are children raised and you know what are teens going to experience? Teens you know are hardwired, essentially in their brain, for risk-taking, you know, exploration and greater reach into the world. And they also focus on more of the potential positives of the situation and less on the negatives. So if you think of it that way with the use of drugs and alcohol also and experiences they might have, um, they're gonna think positively about what may be occurring. It's not gonna happen to them and they're gonna be well. Thanks, Tim. So what are some of the tools parents can use to talk to their kids about opioids? What are some of the ways parents can start this conversation? I would love to hear all of your thoughts on this. Dr. MacArthur, do you want to start? Absolutely. Like I spoke in the last segment is that parents really do have the most important influence on their children. So one of the greatest things that they can do um, to influence them is to establish a strong relationship so that the youth will take advice or recommendations or you know believe them so one of the other things that I just want to reiterate is to have multiple clear conversations so make sure they take advantage of small teachable moments you know they can ask their teens questions why do you think some teens misuse opioids or why do you think they turn to using drugs or opioids or alcohol or things like that and, and really listen to what the answers are uh, from their youth, because that'll give insight to what they think those things are being used for. If they say, well, it makes them feel better, then they can move on from that and say, you know, what is it that you use to feel better? Is there something that you need help with to feel better? Are you doing okay? Do you need, uh, you know, other resources or support or things like that? Um, we, we can't know just from looking from the outside. We need them to tell us and to tell us what they need from us um, and to tell us how they're doing and if they need additional resources. So those conversations with teens are just the most important connection that we can keep um, to make it so that we, like Gabriel was talking, that he, we see, continue to see every person as a real person. 
and that they have those thoughts and feelings and that we want to stay connected to them and we want them to know that we're there to help support or um, stay involved in their lives no matter what it is that they're going through. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, connection is key. Um, thank you for that, Dr. MacArthur. So Charla, you obviously had a really wonderful relationship with Cassidy and you had a strong connection, but what, you know, how did you start this conversation and perhaps what are some of the things that you, you've learned in hindsight? Um, it's a hard one to answer. I think, um, I mean, just talking about tools and yes, obviously we had some tools, but we didn't have others. Something I'm, I'm glad that we were able to do as parents with her from a very young age was be honest with her about life. I felt like we didn't try to hide the truth about things from her. When we would talk about drugs, alcohol, whatever, I mean, those conversations would come up as she, even when she was young. And, you know, we didn't kind of pussyfoot around. We basically, we were honest and said, listen, these substances are gonna make you feel better temporarily, but there's a risk. So I think being honest with our, our kids about it and, and not just labeling the substance as bad, I think is a, a tool that can be useful, you know, rather than just saying, well, don't do drugs. We know that that approach doesn't necessarily work because it's gonna seem a lot more <laughs> interesting, of course, when we're just denying them. I'm not saying, you know, pour him a glass of wine and, you know, give him a needle with some heroin in it. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying, let's be honest with them about the substances and how they make you feel. It's, it's such a good point because that could be confusing. Like if you tell someone, you tell a kid that it's just bad and then someday if they use and it doesn't make things worse, it makes them feel better. Yeah. Very confusing. Absolutely. The other thing, it's a tool, I don't know if it's necessary. Well, I think it does help the child, but it's, I guess it's a tool that, that I learned after the fact, after we were, we were dealing with a teenager in recovery. And that was to not view her recovery as just hers. It was a family disease. It, it affected, her disease was affecting our family. And I'm sure that her dad and I contributed in our own little way to that disease progressively getting worse. So I think for us to take some ownership in her recovery was really important. Um, that, you know, we couldn't just expect to send her off and get her back and she'd be better. <laughs> we had to change behaviors on our part. We had to you know, agree that we wouldn't have alcohol in the house, period, when she was back from, from treatment. We had to agree that our boundaries with her were, you know, we were, we were both on the same page. So I think um, that was really helpful for her recovery after she got back from residential treatment. Of course, keeping that up was the trick. Keeping that level of consistency with her. And then of course, not being in a controlled environment anymore, you know, ultimately caused her to relapse. Oh, it's a, it's such a hard, such a hard situation. It's hard to know what to do. Yeah. Um, Gabriel, what, 
in what ways do you think parents can start this conversation? So I think it's important to not just have the conversation once. I think it's kind of a conversation that needs to happen in stages over a long period of time. Um, and I think there are appropriate topics that are connected to substance use disorder to start with at different ages. And then I think not starting that conversation once people are going into middle school, um, I think those conversations should already have happened before middle school, um, just because I think statistics show that most people are either starting to experiment at that point or even earlier sometimes. So I think it's important to kind of build that toolbox um, as young children because there's so many facets to substance use disorder that can definitely um, happen when people are younger and that don't necessarily um, need to take place one time when someone turns 12, 13, 14. And I think it's also important too to just come from a place of compassion and also humility. So kind of just that going back to this whole, yeah, you know what, maybe we don't know, but let's learn together. Um, or yeah, you know, we've never talked about this before and we're all scared, but let's just go through this together as a family. And I think that kind of breaks down those barriers to let everyone know that, um, that that person's safe to confide in if anything else happens or if any new emotions come up or issues come up. And I think it also takes away a lot of that power from those myths of believing that you're the ultimate family and the ultimate parents who will have no issues. And so I think it really helps everyone just coming from a place of compassion and humility in the end. Yeah, great. Uh, that was um, really well said. After hearing all of you talk about this, about how to start the conversation and, you know, some of the ways to approach this, I mean, it seems like the common, the common thread is that we need to get rid of shame. We need to approach it with love and we need to get rid of all of our judgments and it needs to be a judgment-free zone if we're going to have these, these conversations that are not only open as Charla talked about, but, um, you know, have the ability to, uh, for the whole family to heal and for all of us to, you know, be in this together. I, I sort of, I'm also reminded of my own mom. She and I have always had a really great relationship and um, I attribute that to never feeling judged from her. And I, I, I really have been able to tell her um, everything even if it was crazy stuff that I did as a kid, you know, or not so much as a kid. And um, she never has shown me any sort of judgment and it's always been compassion and love, which has helped me immensely, right? And I, 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 if we can all approach this conversation in that way, I just feel that there's going to be a lot of healing. And that's what our experts have told us today. We're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we'll talk about some of the resources that are available here in Utah and then we'll also talk about why it's important to debunk this myth. So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and USU's Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, committed to educating and serving students and members of both local and extended communities in the fields of kinesiology and health science. Information at khs.usu.edu. And the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative of Utah State University, an effort to address opioid use among rural Utahns in the hopes of eliminating myths and promoting health. Information at khs.usu.edu.outreach. Welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is my kids are too smart and I raised them right so they're not at risk of developing a substance use disorder. 
So really quick, let's just point out some of the uh, resources here, here in Utah. So um, Tim, can you tell us about those resources? Some that we use and are connected with as part of the Utah State University Extension, what we do with opioid and drug um, substance use disorders, violence and injury prevention program as part of Utah Department of Health, the Bear River Health Department, Substance Abuse Treatment Department, um, and also there's um, Utah 211. That's where you can find information, um, treatment centers, places to get help. And then we start getting to some of the partnership for drug-free kids where families can find answers. Um, and then specifically for teens, the National Institute on Drug Abuse for Teens. And then we have the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Advancing Addiction Science. And then SAMHSA, which if you look up any of these sites, you'll find SAMHSA information there also. And there's DEA resources available called Get Smart About Drugs. So there are a lot of local, uh, state, and even federal resources for people who are looking for information. Thanks, Tim. So um, this podcast, it's geared towards harm reduction. So if we find out that our child is using an opioid and they have a substance use disorder, what are some of the harm reduction approaches that we can take to help them you know, in this heal from this. Tim, what are your thoughts on that? When I think of harm reduction um, and some of the work that we're doing now, it's really trying to develop a relationship with that person. So with your child, having that relationship that we've all spoken about, it's very important. But then, you know, looking for a treatment facility that's going to work for them if that's necessary. But part of that, it is talking to your physician. If you have a physician you've been going to or, or somebody that they've been with for a long time, having that relationship where they can also talk to the child or you know, adolescent um, and have everybody kind of come to the conclusion that you know, they need help. And maybe having the child have, or the adolescent have part of that power to make that choice um, and having them be willing to buy into their treatment. Um, we find you know, people that go into treatment that are not ready or don't want to be there are less likely to be successful in many, many ways. And I've seen it many times, I'm sure many of you have too. So. Yeah, that's great. Um, something also specific to opioid use disorders. Um, if you know your child does have an opioid use disorder, you know, or if there are opioids in your home at all, it's a good idea to have naloxone. And our team does a lot of training on naloxone. In Utah, we have a standing order, so you don't, you don't need a prescription to get naloxone at a pharmacy. So we encourage people that prescribe opioids to actually ask people to get um, naloxone when they get that prescription. I think that's something that you know everyone should have. We've seen reversals. We call it reversals when somebody is actually um, brought back from essentially death uh, from an opioid overdose. It's done. It's not something that people like to talk about and like to do, but we're trying to change the stigma of even carrying that as that being part of your 911 system. You call 911, you have Narcan, you use it. Um, it's a very good medication. It's used, it's something that's available and should be talked to people also. I think we talk about you know, giving it to others, but we also want to make sure that they're well-trained in how to use it and feel comfortable. If you think someone is dying or dead in front of you, that is not something you want to see. Um, it's not something you want to ever go through. And to have that wherewithal to go, okay, I'm going to go get my medication that I can use that I think to help that person requires really some training. Training is important. If you want to learn more about naloxone, you can reach out to us on our social media platforms at DebunkedPod, and we will get you connected with someone who can give you a training about naloxone. Um, 
speaking of, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, you know, back in 2016, when Cassidy died of her overdose, naloxone was not widely available without a prescription. And in her obituary, we asked that in lieu of flowers, people would write to their congressmen, congresswomen to um, ask that naloxone be available without a prescription over the counter. And um, we were so grateful to see some of those changes made in, in the year following that, um, that you can just go to the drugstore and get it. I think it's super important. That's probably one of the reasons that, that it went forward because of your letter. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'd like to think it is. <laughs> I mean, certainly that was the time when, you know, fentanyl was hitting the scene really hard and there was a lot more awareness of, of the disease. The week that Cassidy died was the first uh, report from the Surgeon General on addiction where he said that uh, addiction is, it should be known as substance use disorder. It is not a, a moral failure. It is a chronic brain disorder. So I think that's, that, that's helped in a lot of ways. Well, that's incredible. Um, thank you for being the champion in a way for that. That's amazing. I wanted to ask each of you one last question. So I would love to hear from each of you about why you think it's important to debunk this myth. So we'll start with Gabriel, then we'll go to Tim, then Dr. MacArthur, and then we'll let Charla have the last word. So I think it's important to debunk the myth that, you know, it can't be your kids, my kids, my siblings, anything like that, just to reduce the shame around substance use disorder that we've all talked about, that really potent shame that seems to be underlining all of this. And then I think just to help parents and siblings and families receive adequate education around substance use disorder. Thanks, Gabriel. Tim, you want to go next? Sure. Thank you. Thanks, Gabriel, too, for that. I, I agree. I think that we need to debunk and we have debunked this myth, I believe, that you know, good people don't use drugs. That's what they're really trying to say. Good families don't have that occur. We know that's not true. We know that things happen. We need to get people into treatment as necessary. And also we need to just remember that as a society, we should be loving and caring towards all of those who have an illness. Um, and it's something we know is occurring with people with substance use disorders. It is a a chronic illness that needs to be treated. Thanks, Tim. Dr. MacArthur, why do you think it's important to debunk this myth? It's exactly what we need to do to respond to anything that someone's going through, whether it's opioid addiction or trauma or any other thing, is that we just need to debunk the myths to get rid of the stigma so that we can respond to with compassion to whatever someone else is going through but also so that they can get the help that they need. So they have a place, a safe place to come to uh, when they need to get help exactly as Tim and Gabriel said. Thank you. And Charla, why is it important to you to debunk this myth? Oh, I agree. I agree with everything everyone else said, of course. Um, on a personal level, I think it's important that this myth is debunked because if we don't debunk the myth, it's just going to keep happening over and over and over. There's going to be some other mom that gets a phone call that their child is dead. Um, it's unacceptable. There are way too many people dying from overdoses. It is absolutely unacceptable. 
And I think the only way that we can move forward is to get rid of the stigma piece, get rid of the shame, um, move forward with love and connection, let people know that are suffering from substance use disorders that they are loved, that they have someone in their life that loves them unconditionally, that it's possible, that recovery is possible. And it might look different for every single individual. Recovery isn't gonna be the same for everybody. Um, you know, I, I've, I've started changing my language around the word clean. You know, we talk about that a, a, an addict, well, someone suffering from SUD is, if they're not using, they're clean. And I think the more appropriate word is that they're in remission. Again, it's likening their disease to cancer, diabetes. It's just another disease. And we have the capacity to move forward and to learn better treatments. And we certainly have the capacity to love. The Debunk Podcast is made possible by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research. Offering services to the community and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us today on Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we debunk the myth, not my kid. Join us for episode 10 on October 14th, where we will be debunking the myth, all Native Americans do is drink, gamble, and take money from the government. Today we talked about the ways in which opioid use disorders most commonly start in adolescence, the dangers of not talking to our kids about opioids, the recommendations for opioid use prevention, and recommendations for if your child is using opioids. We also talked about resources and initiatives available right here in Utah. And we ended by talking about why it's important to debunk the myth, not my kid. You can find links to the resources mentioned in this episode on our social media platforms at DebunkedPod. Speaking of social media, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at DebunkedPod, or on our website at bit.ly forward slash DebunkedPod. Don't forget to tell all your friends about Debunked, and remind them that they can find the show on the podcast app, Spotify, UPR.org, and anywhere else they get their podcasts. Debunked is produced in collaboration with Utah Public Radio. Funding for the show comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement, the Utah State University Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, and Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield. Our editorial board is Jay Hymas, Adam Baxter, Ashanti Moritz, Savannah Ely, Dr. Sandra Solzer, Dr. Suzanne Prevedel, Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, Mindy Vincent, Patrick Rizak, Michelle Chapuz, Dr. Marin Voss, Dr. Amy Kahn, Trisha Glass, Lloyd Arrive, Hillary Dish, Jennifer Petrus, and Susie Baker. Debunked is produced by Nick Porath, Shalane Smith-Needham, and Fred Weller with Nick Porath serving as lead producer. Our creative specialist is Autumn Gibbs. Music for today's episode was created by Nick Porath. Our science advisor is Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, and our program directors are Dr. Sandra Solzer and Dr. Suzanne Prevedel. I'm Tim Light, host and editorial board member.